Welcome to Golden Gems with Dave Shaw and Bill Hansen. We review each week the career and personal life of one of the great unforgettable artists of the golden days of radio. So please join with us on a trip down memory lane as we take a look at today's artist. Then go to our website, www.goldengems.net, where we will also look at more of their career and play some of their most unforgettable great hits, which we are unable to share on the podcast. We invite you to join us there also. But for now, sit back and relax as we talk about the life of today's unforgettable artist of the golden days of radio. Welcome to Golden Gems, our podcast today featuring Frankie Lane. This is Dave and Bill. He was born Francisco Paolo Lovecchio on March 30th, 1913, to Giovanni and Crescenzia Lovecchio. His Cook County, Illinois birth certificate was already Americanized at the time of his birth, with his name written as Frank Lovecchio, his mother as Anna Salerno, and his father was John Lovecchio, with a V lowercase in each instance. His parents had immigrated from Sicily to Chicago's near West Side in Little Italy, where his father worked at one time as the personal barber for gangster Al Capone. Lane's family appears to have had several organized crime connections, and young Francesco was living with his grandfather when the latter was killed by rival gangsters. The eldest of eight children, Lane grew up in the Old Town neighborhood and got his first taste of singing as a member of the choir in the Church of the Immaculate Conceptions Elementary School across the street from the North Park Avenue home. He later attended Lane Technical High School, spelled L-A-N-E. That's interesting because he used that name later. We'll talk about it. Where he helped to develop his lung power and breath control by joining the track and field and basketball teams. He realized he wanted to be a singer when he missed time in school to see Al Jolson's current talking pitcher, The Singing Fool. Jolson would later visit Lane when both were filming pictures in 1949. And at about this time, Jolson remarked that Lane was going to put all the other singers out of business. Even in the 1920s, his vocal abilities were enough to get him noticed by a slightly older in-crowd at his school, who began inviting him to parties and to local dance clubs, including Chicago's Mary Garden Ballroom. At 17, he sang before a crowd of 5,000 at the Mary Garden Ballroom to such applause that he ended up performing five encores on his first night. Lane was giving dance lessons for a charity ball at the Mary Garden when he was called to the bandstand to sing. Soon I found myself on the main bandstand before this enormous crowd, Lane recalled. I was really nervous, but I started singing beside an open fireplace, a popular song of the day. It was a sentimental tune, and the lyrics choked me up. When I got done, the tears were streaming down my cheeks, and the ballroom became quiet. I was very nearsighted, and I couldn't see the audience. I thought the people didn't like me. Shortly after graduating from high school, 
Lane signed on as a member of the Mary Gardens Marathon Dance Company and toured with them, working dance marathons during the Great Depression and setting a world record of 3,501 hours with partner Ruthie Smith at Atlantic City's Million Dollar Pier in 1932. Still billed as Frank Lovecchio, he would entertain the spectators during the 15-minute breaks the dancers were given each hour. Other artists whose style began to influence Lane at this time were Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, Mildred Bailey, and later Nat King Cole. Lane befriended Cole in Los Angeles, where the latter's career was just beginning to gain momentum. Cole recorded a song, It Only Happens Once, that fledgling songwriter Lane had composed. They remained close friends throughout the remainder of Cole's life, and Lane was one of the pallbearers at Cole's funeral. Lane's next big break came when he replaced Perry Como in the Freddie Carlone Band in Cleveland in 1937. Como made a call to Carlone about Lane. Como was another lifelong friend of Lane's who once lent Lane the money to travel to a possible gig. Lane's rhythmic style was ill-suited to the sweet sounds of the Carlone Band, and the two soon parted. Success continued to elude Lane and he spent the next 10 years scuffling, alternating between singing at small jazz clubs on both coasts and a series of jobs, including those of a bouncer, dance instructor, used car salesman, agent, synthetic leather factory worker, and machinist at a defense plant. Frankie Lane said I would sneak into hotel rooms and sleep on the floor. In fact, I was bodily thrown out of 11 different New York hotels. I stayed in YMCAs and with anyone who would let me flop. Eventually, I was down to my last four cents, and my bed became a roughened wooden bench in Central Park. I used my four pennies to buy four tiny Baby Ruth candy bars and rationed myself to one a day. Frankie Lane he changed his professional name to Frankie Lane in 1938 upon receiving a job singing for the New York City radio station WINS. The program director, Jack Coombs, thought that Lavecchio was too foreign-sounding and too much of a mouthful for the studio announcers, so he Americanized it to Lane, L-A-N-E, a homage to his high school. Frankie added the I later to avoid confusion with a girl singer at the station who went by the name of Frances Lane. Lane next found employment in a munitions plant at a salary of 150 a week. He quit singing for what was perhaps the fifth or sixth time of his already long career. While working at the plant, he met a trio of girl singers and became engaged to the lead singer. The group had been noticed by Johnny Mercer's Capitol Records and convinced Lane to head out to Hollywood with them as their agent. In 1943, he moved to California, where he sang in the background of several films, including The Harvey Girls, and dubbed the singing voice for an actor in the Danny Kaye comedy The Kid from Brooklyn. It was in Los Angeles in 1944 that he met and befriended disc jockey Al Jarvis and composer-pianist Carl T. Fisher, the latter of whom was to be his songwriting partner 
musical director, and piano accompanist until his death in 1954. When the war ended, Lane soon found himself scuffling again and was eventually given a place to stay by Jarvis. Jarvis also did his best to help promote the struggling singer's career, and Lane soon had a small regional following. In the meantime, Lane would make the rounds of the bigger jazz clubs, hoping that the featured band would call him up to perform a number with them. In late 1946, Hoagie Carmichael heard him singing at Billy Berg's club in Los Angeles, and this was when success finally arrived. Not knowing that Carmichael was in the audience, Lane sang the Carmichael Penn standard rocking chair when Slim Gaylord called him up to the stage to sing. This eventually led to a contract with a newly established Mercury Records. Lane and Carmichael would later collaborate on a song, Put Yourself in My Place, Baby. Lane cut his first record in 1944 for a fledgling company called Belltone Records. The label soon, however, folded, and Lane was picked up by Atlas Records, a race label that initially hired him to imitate his friend Nat King Cole. Cole would occasionally moonlight for other labels under pseudonyms while under contract to Capitol. And as he had previously recorded some sides for Atlas, they reasoned that the fans would assume that Frankie Lane was yet another pseudonym for Cole. Lane cut his first two numbers for Atlas in the King mode, backed by R&B artist Johnny Moore's group. The Three Blazers, which featured Charles Brown and Cole's guitarist from the King Cole Trio, and Oscar Moore. The ruse worked, and the record sold moderately well, although limited to the race market. Lane cut the remainder of his songs for Atlas in his own style, including standards such as Roses of Picardy and Moonlight in Vermont. It was also at this time that he recorded a single for Mercury Records, Pickle in the Middle with the Mustard on Top. That's an unusual song. <laughs> and I may be wrong, but I think you're wonderful. He appears only as a character actor on the first side, which features the comedic singing of Artie Arbach, who was a featured player on the Jack Benny radio show. In it, Lane plays a peanut vendor at the ball game and can be heard shouting out lines like, It's a munchy, crunchy bag of lunchy. <laughs> the flip side features Lane and is a jazzy version of an old standard done as a rhythm number. It was played by Lane's friend, disc jockey Al Jarvis, and gained the singer a small West Coast following. His next big break came as he dusted off a 15-year-old song that few people remembered in 1946, That's My Desire. He ended up singing it five times that night. After that, Lane quickly became the star attraction at Berg's and record company executives took note. Lane soon had patrons lining up to hear him sing Desire. Among them was R&B artist Hadda Brooks known for her boogie-woogie piano playing. She listened to him every night and eventually cut her own version of the song, which became a hit on the Harlem charts. I like the way he did, Brooks recalled. He sings with soul. He sings the way he feels. 
Lane is soon recording for the fledgling Mercury label, and That's My Desire was one of the songs cut in his first recording session there. It quickly took the number three spot on the R&B charts, and listeners initially thought Lane was black. I'm surprised one of these uh, fast food chains didn't take up this. Uh, it's a munchy, crunchy bag of lunchy. <laughs> they might do it now <laughs> if they listen to Golden Gems. A clarion voice singer with much style, able to fill halls without a microphone, and one of the biggest hit makers of the late 1940s and early 50s, Lane had more than 70 charted records, 21 gold records, and worldwide sales of over 100 million records. Originally a rhythm and blues-influenced jazz singer, Lane excelled at virtually every music style, eventually expanding to such varied genres as popular standards, gospel, folk country, western Americana, rock and roll, and the occasional novelty number. He was also known as Mr. Rhythm for his driving jazzy style. In the words of jazz critic Richard Grudens, Frank's style was very innovative, which was why he had such difficulty with early acceptance. He would bend notes and sing about the chordal context of a note rather than to sing the note directly, and he stressed each rhythmic downbeat, which was different from the smooth balladeer of his time. His 1946 recording of That's My Desire remains a landmark record signaling the end of both the dominance of the big bands and the crooning styles favored by contemporary Dick Hames and others, often called the first of the blue-eyed soul singers, Lane's style cleared the way for many artists who arose in the late 1940s and early 50s, including K. Starr, Tony Bennett, and Johnny Ray. I think that Frank probably was one of the forerunner of blues, of rock and roll. A lot of singers who sing with a passionate demeanor. Frank was and is definitely that, said Patty Page. Said Herb Jeffries, you can't categorize him. He's one of those singers that's not in one track. And yet I still think that his records had more excitement and life into it. And I think that was his big selling point, that he was so full of energy. You know when you hear his records, it was dynamite energy. Lane enjoyed his greatest success after impresario Mitch Miller who became the A&R man at Mercury in 1948, recognized a universal quality in his voice that led to a succession of chart-topping popular songs, often with a folk or western flavor. Lane and Miller became a formidable hit-making team whose first collaboration, That Lucky Old Son, became the number one song in the country three weeks after its release. It was also Lane's fifth gold record. That lucky old son was something new to the musical scene in 1949. A folk spiritual which, as interpreted by Lane, became both an affirmation of faith and a working man's wish to bring his earthly suffering to an end. The song was knocked down to number two position by Lane and Miller's second collaboration, Mule Train, which proved an even bigger hit, making Lane the first artist to hold the number one and number two spots simultaneously. Mule Train, with its whip cracks and echoes, has been cited as the first song to use an oral texture 
that set the pattern for virtually the entire first decade of rock. Mule Train represents a second direction in which Lane's music would be simultaneously headed under the guidance of Mitch Miller as the voice of the great outdoors and the American West. Mule Train is a slice of life in the mid-19th century West in which the contents of the package being delivered by the Mule Train provides a snapshot into frontier life. There's some cotton, thread, and needles for the folks away up yonder, a shovel for the miner who left his home to wander, some rheumatism pills for the settlers in the hills. Cry of the Wild Goose would be Lane's last number one hit in the American charts. It was written by folk singer Terry Gilkison of the Easy Rider fame. Gilkinson would write many more songs for Lane over the next decade, and he and the Easy Riders would back him up on the hit single, Love is a Golden Ring, Cry of the Wild Goose. Cry of the Wild Goose falls into the voice of the great outdoors category of Lane's songs. With the opening lines of its chorus, My Heart Knows What the Wild Goose Knows, becoming a part of the American lexicon. Lane's influence on today's music can be clearly evidenced in his rendition of the Hoagie Carmichael standard, Georgia on My Mind. Lane's slow, soulful version was a model for the iconic remake by Ray Charles a decade later. Charles would follow up Georgia with remakes of other Frankie Lane hits, including Your Cheating Heart and That Lucky Old Son. In an interview, Mitch Miller described the basis of Lane's appeal. He was my kind of guy. He was very dramatic in his singing. And you must remember that in those days, there were no videos, so you had to depend on the image that the record made in the listener's ears. And that's why many fine artists were not good record sellers. For instance, Lena Horne, she was a fabulous artist, but she never sold many records till that last album of hers but she would always sell out the house no matter where she was. And there were others who sold a lot of records, but couldn't get to first base in personal appearances. But Frankie had it both. But the biggest label of all was Columbia Records, and in 1950, Mitch Miller left Mercury to embark upon his phenomenally successful career as the A&R man there. Lane's contract at Mercury would be up for renewal the following year, and Miller soon brought Lane to Columbia as well. Lane's contract with Columbia was the most lucrative in the industry until RCA bought Elvis Presley's contract five years later. Lane began recording for Columbia Records in 1951, where he immediately served a double-sided hit with a single, Jezebel, Rose, Rose, I Love You. Other Lane hits from this period include High Noon, Do Not Forsake Me, Jealousy, the Girl in the Wood, When You're in Love, Way Down Yonder in New Orleans, with Joe Stafford, Your Cheatin' Heart, Granada, Hey Joe, The Kid's Last Fight, Cool Water, Someday, A Woman in Love, Love is a Golden Ring, with the Easy Riders, and Moonlight Gambler. Lane scored a total of 39 hit records on the charts while at Columbia, and it's many of his songs for this period that are most readily associated with him. His greatest hits album, released in 1957, 
has been a perennial bestseller that has never gone out of print. His songs at Columbia included everything from pop and jazz standards, novelties, gospel, spirituals, R&B numbers, country, western, folk, rock and roll, calypso, foreign language, children music, film and television themes, tangos, and light opera. His vocal styles could range anywhere from shouting out lines to rhythm numbers to romantic ballads. In 1953, he set two more records, this time on the UK chart, several weeks at number one for the song I Believe, which held the number one spot for 18 weeks, and weeks at number one for the artist in a single year, 27 weeks, when Hey Joe and Answer Me, O Lord, became number one hits as well. In spite of the popularity of rock and roll artists such as Elvis Presley and the Beatles, 50 plus years later, both of Lane's records still hold. In 1954, Lane gave the Royal Command performance for Queen Elizabeth II, which he cites as one of the highlights of his career. By the end of the decade, he'd remained far ahead of Elvis Presley as the most successful artist on the British charts. I Believe is listed as the second most popular song of all time on the British charts as well. I Believe marked yet another direction for Lane's music, that of the spiritual. A devout Roman Catholic from childhood, Lane would continue to record songs of faith and inspiration throughout his career, beginning with his rock and gospel album with the Four Lads, which, along with the hit Rain, 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 included renditions of such songs as Remember Me, Didn't He Moan, I Feel Like My Time Ain't Long, and I Heard the Angels Singing. In 1953, Lane recorded his first long playing album that was released domestically solely as an album. Prior to this, his albums had been compiled from previously released singles. The album was entitled Mr. Rhythm, as Lane was often known at that time and featured many jazz-flavored rhythm numbers similar in style to his work on the Mercury label. The album's song list was made up of Great American Songbook standards. Lane's last four albums at Columbia, Hellbent for Leather, Deuces Wild, Call of the Wild, and Wanderlust were arranged by a young John Williams. Williams recently said the following words about Lane. Frankie Lane was somebody that everybody knew. He was a kind of a household word like Frank Sinatra or Bobby Darin or Peggy Lee or Ella Fitzgerald, all of which we'd have on Golden Gems, by the way. Frankie Lane was one of the great popular singers and stylists of that time. And his style, he was one of those artists who had such a unique stamp. Nobody sounded like he did. You could hear two notes, and you knew who it was, and you were right on the beam with it right away. And of course, that defines a successful popular artist, at least at that time. These people were all uniquely individual, and Frank was on the front rank of those people in his appeal to the public and his success, and certainly in his identifiability. Boy, what a great tribute. After switching to ABC Records in the late 1960s, Lane found himself at the top of the charts again, 
beginning with the first song he recorded, I'll Take Care of Your Cares, written as a waltz in the mid-1920s. Cares had become the unofficial theme song of the Las Vegas Call Girls, but was virtually unknown outside of the Strip. Lane recorded a swinging version that made it to number 39 on the national and number two on the adult contemporary charts. Seeking greater artistic freedom, Lane left ABC for the much smaller Amos Records, where he cut two albums in a modern rock-influenced vein. The first album contained contemporary versions of his greatest hits, such as Your Cheating Heart, That Lucky Old Son, I Believe, Jezebel, Shine, and Moonlight Gambler. Amos, which was soon to fold from lack of funds, could not adequately promote them at the time. However, they're still available through CD releases. After Amos folded, Lane started his own label, Score Records, which is still producing albums today. Lane performed at three Academy Award ceremonies, 1950, where he did Mule Train, 1960, The Hanging Tree, and 1975, Blazing Saddles. Only last two of these ceremonies were televised. In 1981, he performed a medley of his hits on American Bandstand's 30th anniversary special, where he received a standing ovation. Later appearances include Nashville Now in 1989 and My Music 2006. Lane was active in many charities as well, including Meals on Wheels, The Salvation Army. Among his charitable works were a series of local benefit concerts and having organized a nationwide drive to provide shoes for the homeless. He donated a large portion of his time and talents to many San Diego charities and homeless shelters, as well as the Salvation Army and St. Vincent de Paul Village. He was also an emeritus member of the Board of Directors of the Mercy Hospital Foundation. A little bit about his personal life. Lane married actress Nan Gray, June of 1950, when she was born, passed away in July of 1993, and adopted her daughters Pam and Jan from a previous marriage to Jackie Westrope. Their 43 marriage lasted until her death. Lane and Nan guest starred on a November 18, 1960 episode of Rawhide, Incident on the Road to Yesterday. They played long-lost lovers. Following a three-year engagement to Anita Craighead, the 86-year-old singer married Marcia Ann Klein in June of 1999. This marriage lasted for the remainder of his life. Lane settled in a hilltop spread in the Point Loma neighborhood of San Diego, where he was a supporter of local events and charities. In 2000, the San Diego Chamber of Commerce dubbed him the Prince of Point Loma. On June 12, 1996, he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 27th Annual Songwriters Hall of Fame Award Ceremony at the New York Sheridan. On his 80th birthday, the United States Congress declared him to be a national treasure. Then a decade later, on March 30, 2003, Frankie celebrated his 90th birthday, and several of his old pals, Herb Jeffries, Patty Page, and K-Star were welcomed to his birthday bash in San Diego 
as each of them gave him a helping hand in blowing out the candles. They must have, you were worried earlier whether he lit all those candles. He apparently did. Surprised he didn't burn the house down. In 2006, he appeared on the PBS My Music Special despite a recent stroke, performing That's My Desire, and received a standing ovation. It proved to be his swan song to the world of popular music. Lane died of heart failure on February 6, 2007, at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego. A memorial mass was held February 12th at the Immaculata Parish Church on the campus of the University of San Diego. The following day, his ashes, along with those of his late wife, Nan Gray, were scattered over the Pacific Ocean. As far as a bit of the legacy that he left, while Lane's influence on popular music, rock and roll, and soul is rarely acknowledged by rock historians, his early crossover success as a singer of race music not only helped pave the way for other white artists who sang in the black style, like K-Star, Johnny Ray, and Elvis Presley, but also helped to increase public acceptance for African-American artists as well. Artists inspired and or influenced by Lane include Ray Charles, Bobby Darin, Lou Rawls, the Kalen Twins, the Beatles, Tom Jones, James Brown, Billy Furry, and many others. He was inducted into the Hit Parade Hall of Fame in 2008. In 2010, a Golden Palm Star on the Palm Springs, California Walk of Stars was dedicated to him. For his contributions to the music and television industry, Frankie Lane has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The music stars at the north side of the 1600 block on Hollywood Boulevard, and the television star is on the west side of the 1600 block on Vine Street. What a great legacy, left by a great entertainer and a great individual. It's been our pleasure today to bring to you some of the incidents about the life of Frankie Lane. We hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have not done so, please go to our webcast at www.goldengems.net to learn a little more of his career and hear of his great songs and entertainment. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you're having as much enjoyment as we are reliving some of the unforgettable memories from the golden days of radio. To learn more about the career of today's artist and listen to several of their greatest hits, we invite you to go to our website, www.goldengems.net. May we also encourage you to tell your friends about the show. We would love to have them join us in these little trips down memory lane. And as always, we invite your feedback or comments on goldengemsradio at gmail.com. So until next episode, this is Dave and Bill heading back into the archives to dust off some more unforgettable memories to share with you on Golden Gems.